Welcome to the special Irish Retail Tech episode of The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. Recorded live in Dublin and then Waterford, Ireland, first up is an interview with Katie Riordan, Vice President of Consumer Retail and Retail Technology for Enterprise Ireland. We talk about her work in the U.S., the connection to retail, and their long-standing QVC partnership, the wonders of St. Patrick's Day, and finally, the Showcase Ireland buying show that connects retailers from around the world to vendors in Ireland. Next, a live and interactive panel introduced by Katie and recorded on the main stage at the Waterford Ireland Tech Summit. I'm joined on the stage by four outstanding Canadian and U.S. retail visionaries talking about leading and managing change and harnessing disruption in the modern retail age. On the panel is Chris Parsons, Director of E-Commerce from Home Hardware, Scott Adele, Leader of Shopper Outcomes from McKesson, Michelle Reed Kulig, Director of Digital Marketing and the Loyalty from Pizza Pizza, and the one and only Shelley Nendekillier, Retail and Digital Pioneer with brands such as Levi's, Home Depot, Williams-Sonoma, Martha Stewart Living and more. But first, let's start out with my interview from Dublin with Katie. Katie, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, we're here in your hometown of Dublin, which is a little, a little unusual because mm-hmm. you and I usually are in New York City. That's it. Absolutely. Uh, but lots to talk about. Why don't we start with uh, a little bit about you, your mm-hmm. personal journey, and, and what you do uh, sure. at Enterprise Ireland. Yes. Yeah, so I've been with Enterprise Ireland for four years. Four years in the United States, two years in Boston, and two years in New York. And in New York, for the last two years, I've been leading on the uh, consumer products and retail technologies portfolio. Mm. So it's been it's been an interesting journey been there since fall of 2015. And, wow. And yeah, before that, did a couple of years in Dublin in experiential marketing and working for a small jewelry company. So oh, neat. It's been a wild ride. Yep. Oh, tell us a little bit about Enterprise Ireland. What's the what's the mandate and, and yeah, what, what does it do? Love to. So the sole mission of Enterprise Ireland is to grow the exports of indigenous Irish companies. So we are an export development agency and that is our mission, but we do a lot more besides. We're one of the largest VCs in the world by the amount of small seed investment deals that we do. So not only do you promote the businesses, we you also, also take invest. a bit of a stake, eh? We That's do, we do. Um, you know, we do a huge amount of due diligence and we get hundreds of applications from Irish startups every mm. year and our whole team is very dedicated to um, vetting them and making sure that they are viable, export-led, innovative ideas. Mm. We're a government organization, we right. take great pride in who we invest in. And we work with about 4,000 companies. 4,000 yeah, companies. And all so Irish. obviously not all retail tech, no, a bit of mixed no. ag tech and Everything all kinds of things. from right? farming machinery through knitwear, through medical devices, you name it, we probably have a company that does it. Mm. And our team of about 400 in Ireland look after that. Yeah. And then we have, I think at last count, we have 41 offices all over the world, mm. including eight in North America, six right. in the US, two in Canada. And in the international offices, our teams there are really responsible for working one-to-one with our companies Mm. to help them gain entry into the market, but also developing relationships with, in my case, retailers in the US and Canada, Mm. and really inviting them to Ireland to kind of connect with our companies here and see exactly what we're doing and the kind of innovation that Irish companies are leading. So it's a really exciting, yeah, varied yeah. job. Yeah. So that's a great segue uh, to why you and I are here yeah. together in, in Ireland. We mm-hmm. just came out of Waterford. And tell us about what we were what we were up to there. Yeah, great. Um, so we were in Waterford with a group of five retailers, and it's great to have you on board in this project, Michael. Um, and the reason we chose Waterford, Waterford is a small city, about 100,000 people. It's two hours outside of Dublin in the sunny southeast. And there's a really fantastic institute of technology there called WIT, Waterford Institute of Technology, that has an incubator called Art Labs and also um, a school called TSSG. Mm. And they're pioneering lots of innovations and IP and research into communications and connectivity and how that can impact in retail. And a number of startups and spin-outs have developed from that research. Hence, we decided to hold the inaugural North American Retail Technology Mm. Summit here with them. a great group of retailers. Mm. We had Home Hardware, McKesson, Pizza Pizza, Georgia Pacific, and your good self. Yeah. Um, and we had, I think we had 25 companies attending of all various scales. What you would call your clients. So some, Our of, the, clients, some of your clients. Yeah, so companies that we've invested in and supported, and you know, um, 
we're not we're actually just to say we're not just a VC we would support these companies in a whole range of funds mm. and mentorships and and this initiative is an example right. of that. Help them connect to customers well, that's potentially, it, you right? know, and, and or, even, or at least give them insight into mm-hmm. what like-minded people or retailers are thinking. Let's get back a little bit to what you do kind of as your role in New mm-hmm. York. There's a couple of things I wanted to sure. for to call out. You do work with a great retailer, QVC, and then mm-hmm. you do some some other work. You're at Notre Dame. Uh, yeah. The big game. So tell us the a little bit about game. that initiative. The, particularly the QVC one is interesting to me because it's been running for a significant amount of time. Yeah. Um, and it's just a big milestone in the uh, in the portfolio, right? Yeah. So part of my portfolio is, you know, I, this was a retail technology event. But, of course, a huge sector of my portfolio is um, kind of more traditional craft items. But it's an incredible group of businesses, many of whom have been in family for generations mm. and who employ many, many people in towns across Ireland and have built multi-million euro businesses. And so QVC have been a significant partner with Enterprise Ireland since about 1989. Ireland is the only country left to have a dedicated day, March Mm. 17th, St. Patrick's Day, on QVC. Mm. We're about, I think, don't quote me on this figure, but I think about 12 Irish companies actually have the entire 24-hour period on QVC to sell their items and to connect with their customers. And they've developed these... This this day has launched those brands in the mm. United States particularly and really helped them to grow and been a great partner um, with us. So um, QVC team, they come to Ireland every year in January for showcase. Mm. They have really deep relationships with the vendors that they purchase from. And our vendors now have fans. There are fans of these of mm. this St. Patrick's Day show, and actually, when some of our um, vendors are in the U.S. and other projects, they get stopped and recognized by fans on the street. Come on, that's, so that's cool. That's fun. Status. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, it, you know, I know a little bit about it. It works well for QVC as well. Like yeah. QVC, you know, isn't a charity. No, <laughs> they're they're a great retailer. So I mean, they only buy because these products sell. They sell. You know, and that's they're right. high quality, and our vendors are on time and nice to deal with, and yeah. you know, all that goes with that. So. Yeah, they're not doing us any favors, and we're not either. But right. it's a great business deal. It's a great, and a great partnership. partnership you know? Great partnership. Um, so yeah, and then you mentioned Notre Dame again. Yeah. We've been supplying. Well, Enterprise Ireland has been a partner with them and has mm. had Irish companies supplying to them for at least 15 years. Um, two weeks ago, we were we had, did a crafted in Ireland event. Where we actually set up a small Irish store with eight different vendors who flew out to South Bend, mm. and it's a. It's an experience. Have you ever been to Notre Dame? I've never. What was it like? What was it like? It was was incredible. The store is two levels. It's probably about 4,000 square feet, 32 chill points. Wow. It's a sea of people. Mm. And there's nothing quite like it. You can buy anything you want in that store with a Notre Dame logo on it. You know, (laughs) I mean, from beer, because they had like dog costumes. They had every type of apparel, Mardi Gras beads, shot glasses, car registration plates, and yeah, it's packed. But again, a great opportunity for our vendors to partner with them and, mm. and produce, you know, licensed merchandise for them. Right. So having those high, well, high-level, well-recognized brands mm. is is great, you know. You mentioned uh, showcase, so let's talk about showcase yeah. a little bit because that's another big milestone. And it's I huge. work with. Uh, your colleague uh, Lizzie Curran mm-hmm. in Toronto and yeah. um, Showcase is an event that is what the buyers listening would understand as a, as a trade show it's it a is. buying show it is uh, tell us a little bit more about it absolutely so Showcase happens in the third weekend of January every year it's about 40 years old and it's Ireland's biggest domestic retail show mm. so there's 450 exhibitors mainly across apparel gift homewares and we have 4,000 attendees about 1,000 of those are international and 3,000 are domestic. Yep. So it's a very significant show for the vendors that attend. They say, good showcase, good year. Mm. Really sets them up for the start of the right. year and then they know. And so Enterprise Ireland, from across the world, we fly back about 280 buyers, mm. 50 from the US and about 10 from Canada. Yeah. And what we want to create Enterprise Ireland is we want to introduce showcase to buyers and to retailers who mm. might not be familiar with the show and to give them a guided experience and to you know to introduce them to the vendors and to listen to exactly what they're looking for and maybe help them to spot the hidden gems that they won't know and then you know i think what retailers are more and more looking for is to give their customers that sense of discovery yeah yeah i know that you can go in and somebody finds a beautiful piece of knitwear where's that from and it's from ireland and that store has now provided that customer with Mm. a unique experience and something that they'll remember that's ethically produced and 
you know, is not going to fall apart in the washing machine and all that kind of good thing. And, so it's, it un- and it's unique as well because, um, you know, we're all, all retailers are trying to get break away from, a, you know, the sea of homogeneity. They're trying yeah. to find unique items exactly. at all price points and mm-hmm. you can get good, better, best price points I've, I've yeah, it's seen. Yeah, it's, right? it's a mixed price point, that's for sure. It's, you know, everything from up to the thousands, thousands to, you know, 20. Yep. It's about that. There's 450 Avengers at the show. It's very walkable. I know retailers like that a lot. You can, yeah. you know, you can wear your favorite pair of boots. You don't need to go in sneakers. And, yeah. um, you got to put the miles on walking those, uh, yeah, walking those show it's, boots. It's okay. As they go, it's a pretty good show. Yeah. And the lovely thing about the community as well is that the vendors, everyone's a business and everybody has mouths to feed and employs people, but there's a lovely atmosphere mm. in the show. So if you're a retailer and you go and you're dealing with um, a tweed supplier, but you say you're looking for knitwear, that, that supplier will tell you who you need to go to and talk mm. to and connect you. It's, it's a good, just, co- good community, right? They yeah, kind of, it's just nice. Yeah. And, you know, it's, again, business is business, but... Yeah. It's nice when you walk on a floor and there's a sense of camaraderie. Right. And, it, you know, everyone feeds off each other. And that's a nice thing about the retailers that we bring over as well. I get a lot that of the 50 that I bring over, a real high point as well as they say, I got to, you know, sit and have a coffee with somebody in the industry that I've wanted to talk to for a really long right time. On, right on. So we have Notre Dame, QVC, St. Patrick's Cathedral, museum stores, mm. Irish stores, art galleries, boutiques, yeah. east, west, north, south. Yeah, it's really very bunch. Yeah. So. And for uh, a shout out for any retailers from Canada listening with the new trade agreement, CETA trade yeah. agreement. Oh, yes. Uh, the Irish goods are particularly mm-hmm. uh, more attractive because some of the some of the tariffs were up to eighteen. Yeah, you know, it's high. It's quite high, and those are gone now thanks to the mm-hmm. CETA agreement. So uh, happy days. <laughs> happy days as we all turn our minds to uh, exactly yeah. to the show. Um, how do people get a hold of you? Are you LinkedIn? What's the, if they're I'm listening? I'm on LinkedIn. And, yeah. Katie Rudin. Katie with a C. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out. And if you want to learn more, Enterprise Armor kind of a unique organization. And sure. we have our fingers in many pies and have a lot of activities. So yeah, reach out and get in touch. Well, fantastic. Thanks for joining me on The Voice yeah, of Retail. Thank a real you. treat to, yes, to be pleasure. here in your hometown. Well, welcome. We're happy to have you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, likewise. is harnessing disruption, strategic technology, and cultural change on the front lines. All right, hello everyone again. Ooh, that was loud. Um, we are live podcasting this, so uh, let's have a round of applause for uh, the live audience. Um, so listen, this is a real treat uh, to be able to have such uh, thought leaders in one place at one time. Uh, and uh, so I thought, what a great opportunity to take advantage of that. And when I think about um, what each of you do and how you work within industries that are either facing disruption and you've been brought on as change agents or you've been change agents your entire life, uh, what a great opportunity to talk about disruption and then, and then harnessing that disruption to provide solutions, insights, tips and ideas for the, for the folks uh, in the audience. So why don't we start out um, with a little bit about yourself. Now, there's bios in the, in the brochures on the on the table. So a little bit about yourself and your personal professional journey. Michelle, let's start with you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michelle Reed Kulig. I um, have been in digital marketing most of my career. I started as a database marketer. That's been a, a constant. Uh, as people were building online databases, it was a natural move for me to move into that space. I, uh, change agent is a relatively new term. It is something I've been doing. Pushing water uphill is more likely, uh, more aptly how I describe what my career has been. Um, at the end of the day, it is all about customers. And that, for me, it's easier now. My job is easier now than ever because as I described it to someone earlier, we're all consumers now and we all have these expectations um, around ease of delivery, ease of use. Um, convenience, and so that makes the conversations that I have around my office today much easier than ever as we all put ourselves in those shoes. Shelley, you and I have known each other since um, the late 90s, working together at Levi's. Talk about a a long career of of disruption. Um, Tell us a little bit uh, for the the audience a little bit about yourself and your history in in business. Sure. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be here. Thanks for hosting uh, this panel. Um, as Michael said, we, we worked together at Levi's at one point, and I had the uh, pleasure of leaving Levi's to be a person 
selling the first pair of jeans ever uh, for a 150-year-old company. It was March 31st, 1998, so it really dates us. Anyway, um, I've spent uh, my, most of my career in e-commerce, uh, innovation, startup, um, and high-growth uh, businesses. I've worked with private equity as well as with venture funds, as well as with uh, large corporations who try to look at alternative strategies to kind of build side businesses. I think uh, it's been exciting. I think uh, my principal focus has been like Michelle, always focused on being customer-focused, customer market-based, and somewhat obsessive about the customer need. Uh, I think the one, one thing that's profound in companies that are trying to disrupt or change things is that they have a all-in mentality. It's different than, you know, a lot of companies want to dabble in things. I think the people who view disruption from a more intrinsic opportunity to change the DNA, otherwise they will survive and thrive and make the progress to a new frontier. So avoids the, the curse of incrementalism. That's right. I mean, incrementality only moves the needle so much. I think you want step-step function change. And to do that, you've got to really invest in a different tomorrow that's, uh, you know, not your legacy past. Scott, um, tell us a bit about your background. So it's such a rich, um, right from pushing carts in the parking lot in the Yukon to uh, the front lines of retail and recreating customer experience. Yeah, I'm kind of the uh, anomaly on the, on the panel maybe. Uh, I started out, I'm, a, I'm an operator basically by trade. I, uh, I grew up in a small business <clears throat> and then as Michael said, uh, moved to the Great White North and uh, started, started in a Canadian tire store pushing, parking lot, or pushing shopping carts and, and picking up cigarette butts as my, uh, my first job. Uh, and, and quite interesting, eight years later, I was uh, in the executive offices of that particular company uh, writing manuals for the dealer network on how to order better. Uh, you know, the interesting part about sort of my history is everywhere I've kind of gone through or, or what I've worked on, whether it be Canadian Tire or, you know, I was at Toys R Us for 11 years, uh, uh, I've always looked at things from the consumer perspective or the customer perspective. And I learned quite, quite early you know, six or seven years old when I worked in my grandfather's and my father's clothing store, you know, really how to focus on that need, right, or the unmet need of the customer. Uh, so I've gone from everywhere from, you know, automotive service and, and parts to toys, which is uh, Toys and Baby, which is an amazing uh, story, uh, to most recently uh, men's fashion brand, Frank and Oak. Uh, I, I helped uh, start their uh, foray into retail, so we built their, their retail arm of that company over three years. So that's an interesting one because it was a digital first, Correct, yeah. kind of on the vanguard of, of digitally native companies that recognize the benefit of physicality and physical yeah. stores. The company was the first company actually to win Deloitte's um, uh, top 500 uh, tech companies, actually top, top tech company, and we were a top uh, clothing company. Uh, so we were the first Canadian retailer to be truly omnicentric, uh, actually have one profile across our stores, our mobility, and our, and our online marketplace. Uh, I moved out of that company and, and uh, went to Tulip Retail uh, and uh, worked with Tulip and Apple quite closely on associate mobility and how to actually now start uh, working with that customer and starting to change how they interact with associates in the retail environment. Yes, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I like that role because um, more and more retailers are turning their minds less about driving incremental store traffic, which is incredibly difficult now, and more to what happens in the store to drive incremental lift in sales for people that do get across the threshold, right? And we're seeing that as a trend uh, both on physical stores but also online. The less chasing of uh, numbers and traffic and more building margin in to the business, in the core business, right? That's where you see, and, and you know, that's a great segue is now I find myself in Pharmacare, uh, which I have no history in Pharmacare or to be a pharmacist at all. Uh, but interacting with customers is a super personalized experience, right? So. Um, you know, coming now and, and driving innovation uh, for McKesson, right, and how their retail stores go and, and interact with people and creating a new patient experience. Uh, taking all of that cumulative operational work, uh, it, it's created a, a new uh, opportunity for me, I think, and, and quite uh, quite fun results we're seeing now in one of Very good. Chris, tell us about yourself and, and uh, a little bit about home hardware as well, because it's a, such a fascinating business. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Chris Parsons, Director of E-Commerce for Home Hardware. Thank you everyone for allowing us to be here. It's been a great experience so far. Um, I cut my teeth at a small place called Walmart Canada, creating e-commerce um, literally with Dreamweaver and HTML for Dummies. Uh, built their uh, e-commerce platform in 2004. 
then went on to another company, UA.com, ran their global division, launched eight countries for them, and found my way just six months ago to Home Hardware. Home Hardware is a, a franchise type of model. Uh, we have 1,100 locations across Canada. Um, where Michael was stating earlier in his presentation that most Canadians along the border, um, our customers are not. Um, we uh, are our customers in rural areas that uh, may or may not have great internet connection, the uh, shop, all the customers are local to the community, and we're really just starting to embrace digital. Um, now that the Wi-Fi system in Canada is better, um, can consumers can actually shop within their, their local markets, and it's now a reality for our store owners that digital is um, is disruption for them. Whereas before they were kind of protected because the service was so poor that the options weren't great to shop online. And you, let's start with you. Let's talk about uh, what disruption looks and feels like where you work. So your category, home hardware, home building, was significantly disrupted over the past uh, 20 years when the big box stores, the Home Depots, the Lowe's came to market. And, and what made Home Hardware great and continues to make them great is their knowledge of the local market, right? The franchisees know their community. Um, but that was tremendously disruptful. And now you've got another phase of disruption when, with, uh, with e-commerce and online. So, so tell us about how that's playing itself out in, in uh, your organization. Sure, it's basically death by a thousand cuts if we don't pay attention to it because Loblaws, uh, Loblaws is even selling homeware hardware stuff as well, right? Mm -hmm. Measuring tapes, all the do-it-yourself type of customer. Um, so it's everybody's getting a dollar store has a number of options for our consumers now. So, and with digital, you have Amazon who plays a big part, but where we really try to thrive, and we touched on it a little bit, is with our service. Our associates are very strong on product knowledge. They try to remember everyone by name. They create an experience for that customer when they're in store. Um, while we still have a lot of opportunity, we have these great hubs within our location, whether it's a key cutting section, a paint section, um, to really blow those up and make them a little bit more Apple-esque within our stores. Um, that's why people shop with us, is for that, you know, if you ever watch the show Cheers on TV, uh, you know, Norm comes in and everybody's like, Norm, um, that's how our customers feel when they walk into the store. They know that, you know, if they had a leaky faucet, that Jim, the owner of that store, has fixed it, and now he's got some new solutions for maintaining that throughout the lifetime of that customer's journey. So um, you don't get that in the big box store. You're, you're yelling for support and trying to find some guy that says, oh, no, that's not my section. I'm over here. Uh, we don't operate like that. We really take the customer to the shelf and walk them through that whole journey. It's a fascinating business because it, it, at once it's, it's rural and thrives by its connection, but at the same time now you're, you're operating in a much bigger environment um, where you need to, to really rethink how do you keep that element of the business, but at the same time move into the next century with the, you know, what I referred to earlier as the Amazon effect is kind of washing over everyone, but how do you keep the, the essence of what's made you great and as opposed to box springs? Agreed. And you know, one of the philosophies I have, thankfully, I had some experience at a company that's out of business now, but it's called Future Shop. And one of the things I learned there was this approach called guest. So create, understand, educate, secure, and thank. And what I find from a digital standpoint, that whole uh, sales journey is missing. Because we tell a lot of selling item at a price. You don't treat anyone like a guest. They just show up to your, your web. So how do you take that in-store experience and create something more fulfilling with chatbots or et cetera? Uh, on a digital experience and, and really understand your shopper before you just serve up, here's a product, you know, the next Dyson at $2.99 um, and you just bought it back in last week. How do you get into the item price game? Right, right, yeah, solution selling. Michelle, you've, um, your recently arrival at Pizza Pizza and, and you and I were chatting about when I was growing up, it was a revolution. Talk about disruption where Pizza Pizza took what was a very fragmented industry of mom and pops and did something as simple but pretty revolutionary of one phone number. So no matter which city you went to, you called the same phone number for pizza. And so in its time, um, such a disruptive company, but now that, again, the forces of disruption are washing over your business uh, writ large. We talked about the Uber Eats and the delivery, and you know, home delivery is nothing new to the pizza business. But tell us about how that's affecting and how you're thinking about that in, in your organization. 
Uh, so for those of you who aren't aware, who haven't been to <coughs> Pizza Pizza is a 50-plus-year-old organization. Uh, and similar to the franchisee model that Chris was just describing, we have over 700 locations across the country that are franchise-owned and operated. Um, you will know our bigger competitor, which is Domino's, um, which of course is a, a, a key and formidable competitor, as they are. They consider themselves a technology company first that happens to deliver pizza. We are a pizza business, um, and so we've been, as Michael is suggesting, largely disrupted. So when I just joined about a year ago, uh, this 50-plus-year-old organization. Uh, coming at it from this user-centric view. So we've got a really strong technology team, really strong operations team, really strong marketing team. Uh, but this notion of the user experience and how it connects is the opportunity that, uh, that I am uh, trying to solve. Uh, so it is super interesting, massive opportunity for impact. Again, it all comes back to that customer experience and that's really what uh, I'm working with our team on right now is how do we bring that customer experience uh, to be differentiated in the marketplace so that where we're competing against the Uber Eats and the Skip the Dishes and the Fedora, and I could go on and on about well, these. The grocery stores are putting in the $50,000 pizza oven, right? Everybody comes after pizza, it seems. You talk about share of appetite. Yeah. And pizza, I mean, pizza's, it's, it's a people pleaser, but how can, our other challenge is how can we stop it from being this commodity because we've gotten ourselves into this price war game uh, so how we have to differentiate on experience. Right. So that's our, our opportunity and our challenge. I've always liked the business because it's also family. It's a family-owned business, so it has both the, the, the identity of purpose uh, and the identity of brand, but uh, everything is fleeting. It is family-owned. It's also traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, which makes the sales dynamic interesting. So we're only as good as, as last year's sales. Right. There's a lot of pressure on sales as well. Um, which, of course, being in the e-commerce space is exciting and interesting because you just need to sell lots of pizzas. Yeah, nothing new for you, for sure. Right. Shelley, you've gone through and uh, uh, a characteristic of your career has been disruption and looking at businesses and, and uh, you've, been the, you've been the disruptor and you've been disrupted at the same time. Give us a sense of, of how you see disruption in various businesses that you've got experience in and, and what you're doing today. Stuff is interesting because I think it comes from different places. Usually it comes from the least expected places. For example, today I'm in a company that manufactures a lot of paper products and they have a lot of paper usage uh, in our dispensing system. So if you go to um, you know, any of these large uh, venues or arenas, you see a lot of paper products and white chemicals and hand cleansing in the bathroom and different usage areas. Uh, so interestingly, one of the biggest disruptions in that space is air, mm -hmm. right? Because people are moving away from paper and saying that that's not a sustainable um, long-term green solution. So we were looking at different kinds of ways of powering that up. And so what I've sort of seen mostly in many of the businesses that I've been part of, so when I was on people, uh, the biggest disruptor on the block was, uh, you know, Amazon. Uh, when I was at William Sonoma, the biggest disruption on the, uh, on the um, table was, uh, you know, sort of solar tops something else, changing the different methodology of, you know, of the business model. So I think um, what I've kind of sort of zeroed in on is sort of the basic, which is going back to customers and understanding what needs behind that, and trying to think about the consumer experience and the friction in your business and the opportunity from a customer lens perspective. And so again, so looking ahead, I think the biggest challenge we face is we still envision a world that belongs to Google, but really the transition is the millennial set. And their pattern of consumption, their uh, love of technology, their familiarity with technology is very different from people like us who adopted it, and they've been, they're digitally native to it, right? So, the whole outlook about use and consumption is as different as our parents were in the way they consume things we do. And so I think the, the thing that gets in the way from us thinking through disruption and effective ways to think about the next set of customers and what they need to be right. and how to fashion a model that allows you to live today and you know, plan for tomorrow. You know, what's interesting is, is no matter the size of the business, 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, Home Depot, not a small neighborhood business, but it still feels like it's being disrupted. And, you know, these major players still have someone coming next who can change things. And then what you're saying is that you know, the biggest thing that's coming next is generational and, yeah. and the different attitudes. And I think, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'd be interested in your opinion because it, it feels like this generation is more disruptive than the last. But maybe that's just the perception because we're living in so the rental economy and the, and the, the perspective on sustainability. But, you know, maybe 30 years ago, that's what, you know, folks 30 years ago thought about the generation coming up behind them. So is this just a non-ending cycle, or is there something different happening today? So there are two or three large forces in play, right? So one's the generational piece. The other is the investment in technology. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there's ever been that kind of, you know, technological investment in terms of number of people around the globe in large companies doing innovation and disruption. So if you think of Samsung, Apple, Google, um, Amazon, and you know, uh, these four alone probably employ more people in these technological innovation projects than has ever been employed in the world up to this point in time. So you know, that's huge. And I think the other piece is the rate of adoption is changing. I think you know, generationally, I think our kids are much more uh, adept and faster in embracing technology because it's native to them than we were in our lives. So I think that's another force that's playing in. And so I think uh, these three forces, generational technology investment and the adaptiveness of the new generation, is, uh, is sort of ramping up uh, the change factor. It's interesting. I, I was looking, there's a historical reference. I was, I was looking at some uh, Reading an interesting article that compared what's going on now to the history of introducing electricity into factories in the 19th century. And that when electricity was first introduced, it really had no effect for 20 to 30 years because no one really knew how to do it or affect, their, you know, affect the manufacturing design. But in 30 to 40 years, uh, it completely revolutionized and created the Industrial Revolution. And I think about that about computing power. I mean, computing power has been around for 30, 40 years. I mean, at first, when we were talking yesterday about our first computers, you know, these just giant boxes for thousands of dollars that really, you know, were, were less powerful than the, the handsets that are in our pockets. So it's really taken a generation for this uh, geometric effect from, from this to really start impacting industry, which is, I, I kind of get <coughs> to well, Brian, Brian, I, mean, yeah. I think the other point I would make is, it's not game over, right? So if you go back to 2000, who are the giants out there, AOM and Yahoo. Yeah. Look at them today. Yeah. So I think this is just the start of the revolution. There's more to come. Right. Of it. When, it's the, if we even think back even more recently, when you think about the Amazons of the world, is, you know, they seem undefeatable. They seem inevitable. But you cast your mind back to 1978. So in 1978, anyone know who the biggest retailer in the world was? It was Sears. So 1978, the biggest global retailer was Sears, and they seemed unassailable. They seemed so powerful. When I launched HBC.com, so HudsonsBay.com in 2000, we just hoped to put a few dents in the Sears business. Like, they had a catalog business, they had distribution, they had it all, right? We were like, oh, if only we could just touch what their business is. Well, Sears is gone and bankrupt from the Canadian market 20 years later. So, the, you know, the, what seems um, inevitable some days isn't, isn't the case. Scott, you're really trying, your role is to really reimagine um, with your background and, and indexing or, or you know, triangulating what you see. You're trying to reimagine customer experience in a category that hasn't had a lot of reimagining and is huge, right? So McKesson is what, the sixth largest organization company in North America. So you're not, you're, you're not a startup. So the mentality of a startup is not exactly pervasive, potentially, for all the right reasons. But how, so how do you do, and what do you do uh, in your category? Yeah, so I think that's the fun part about you know, being or, or coming into McKesson for myself, is uh, it, it isn't an industry that's been disrupted really in a hundred years. Uh, your pharmacy you know, experience is very transactional. You have a prescription, you go in, you give it to somebody, you wait the time, you take your pills, you take off. Um, but you know, as, as you just described, you know, the consumer itself, forget about technology as a whole, consumers are more educated, are more demanding, 
and are more savvy around what they expect and what they need. Uh, so it, it creates, the longer we go down this path or, or the, the further we go into the future, the more savvy disruption needs to become because there's now legislation around things like privacy and how you interact. And, you know, they have, they have rights now as to what you can and cannot, cannot do. I mean, quite frankly, disruption was a lot easier 20 years ago when you're coming up with the first APIs or even 10 years ago, the first apps. You just went, we talked about last night, you got whatever you wanted on their phone uh, when they walked past the beacon. Now it's a lot different. The benefit to what we're doing in, in or my group, what we're doing in, in McKesson, is my group is, is specifically designed as an incubator uh, startup within this company that reports directly into the CEO uh, of, of the Canadian division and uh, bypasses all the bureaucracy of a large company. So our full mandate is actually to come up with a new patient experience, uh, however we, we best fit. Uh, and one of the unique ways we did it, uh, which is not unlike the way we used to do it 15 years ago, is we did one of the largest ethnographic studies of our patients uh, in our company ever. We, uh, we surveyed over you know, 38,000, I think, uh, uh, patients. Uh, then we whittled that down to 500, and we kind of looked at them for, for three months, had them do video diaries and et cetera on, online. And then we went into 45 of the homes. And we actually started looking at what were the unmet needs of the patient in a pharmacy. And we created sort of the 13 ingredients of of what would make a successful uh, experience. And then we whittled that down, and it really whittled down to three things, which was, you know, patients uh, wanted an easy pharmacy experience, an easy, you know, was articulated in beautiful ways. They wanted to be nudged along their journey. They didn't want to just walk in and say, you know, I need this. They wanted actually support around decisions. Uh, and then the last piece was feeling supported. So after my care, you know, how do I feel? And, and it would be nice if someone checked up on me. And then, in a public health care system like, like Canada, you get your three or five minutes with that doctor to give you a script. Well, that may or may not be right. And if you're wrong, you gotta go back, you gotta wait again to get your doctor. How can we extend that within, within the pharmacy? And then, you know, to do all of that, um, that's all work in itself, understanding it. When you go and you recreate the experience, in order to get it right, you all of this data. And then we, we built the store unconventionally. I built the entire store in VR, actually, as an example, uh, before I even swung a hammer. We built it, the, we, we articulated the design, we built it in virtual reality, and then I took a, an N of 75, and I put patients through it. And I put them in an Oculus Rift, and I had them in a research center, and I actually looked at what they looked at in the store, what they focused on, took that data, realigned it again, put more patients back through. Uh, I love that example, because you know, both yesterday and today we're talking about these you know, highfalutin AR, VR, and how close is that to reality? But what you're talking about is you're actually using that in a very practical way. Shelly, you mentioned that you were doing the same thing. And this Oculus Rift kind of allows an environment to overlay a consumer experience, right? So you're actually doing store layout today. Not even, not even more, Michael. So where you take something like that, and one of the hurdles we have, and I'm sure most of the people in this, uh, in this room, what happens they're talking to retailers, of course, you're, you're following the same, same pattern. The investment in something like that is always a hurdle, right? Oh my God, how am I gonna spend X amount of money to build a VR store? What we found was all of these branched off uses after. Now we use it for employee training, mm -hmm. and we use it for workflow management. You know, do we have enough room between you know, structures, or if I wanted to have a pharmacist do this and this, skip them the handles, and can you actually move you know, things from point A to point B, and how do we make it more efficient? So you can find some of this technology, if you think about it the right way, Recycle it and recycle it and recycle it within usage uh, is is one of the challenges, and I think that's that's where innovation really comes from. Is you look at something, you use it for a benefit, and shy of what our society is used to now, which is the disposable component, throw it over here and look for the next thing. How do I actually recycle that to gain more benefit? And the companies that do it really really well, I think, are taking things like that, building their MVP, and then recycling it into two or three other products, creating new MVPs. Isolating and synergizing the first one and creating growth, right? That's the, the flywheel effect really that we were talking about. Chris, I, I wanted to touch on, and, and I'm going to talk this question to yourself and, and, and Michelle, because you, you're coming at being a change agent in organizations from two different dimensions, I think, but you're winding up in the same place. So, Chris, your organization, fantastic history in, in the country had a, a senior management team that kind of said, we need to do something different. So actually brought in 
uh, a new CEO whose mandate is change. And, and you and I both know uh, the CEO, and it, it, he's not an individual you bring in to remain, to keep the business going. It's a change agent. So talk about how not just you, but the organization, but focus on you, are change and a change agent in an organization that's not used to change. What's that like? And, and I ask the question because everyone, I think, in the audience is um, looking to find or seek that change agent to become an advocate for change, to adopt new technology, or even just to understand or look at new technology. And, and that's what's common amongst all of you is your your abilities to be those change agents. But how, how does it how is it going basically at, at, at an organization like Homer? Yeah, Kevin, our CEO, has been there for just about a year now. Um, I myself have been with them for six months. As far as change, the first three months that I was there it was just absolutely dreadful as far as culture is concerned because these people, 30, 40 years of experience, the dealers have owned their store, they've handed it down to generation after generation. Um, and, but, and they've been very successful, I think, the other yes. The other, yeah. the, the other layers, they, it's, it's one of the top businesses in the country, and they were successful when many thought when the big box stores, the Home Depots and the Lowe's came, that you were in big trouble, but you really thrived. And they said, well, listen, if we can beat back that, yeah. we must be doing something right. And they're doing a lot right. So the key message is we're going to build on what they're doing right, and we're not just going to throw out everything and start fresh because we think we know it all. So we're being very respectful. We're doing town halls across the country. I was speaking earlier that I'm flying right across the country, um, fortunately for us, in January, which is great because I know how many flights are going to be canceled because um, of snow. But It'll take you a week to get across the province. That's right. Uh, so there, there's that standpoint. There's also the, um, the luxury of storytelling. And I think this plays a big role in it. You have to do a lot of education of staff internally, uh, education of the of the dealers, showing them what your plans are, return on investment, um, and create advocates throughout the organization to speak about the the pathway that you're on. Um, we also have picked up radical candor uh, within our within our office. Radical candor is basically just throwing it under the table. We're not meant to be disrespectful, but we're going to have hard discussions and debate things, and then we leave there. And uh, the best way I term it is is um, if you think of West Side Story, once you're a jet, you're a jet. So um, basically you go into that room, you put your stuff on the table, you walk out of that room and you're aligned. You do not go into another meeting and say, well, Kevin said we're doing it this way, so we have to do it this way. Nope, we came to an agreement and we're aligned. And I think what that does from the organization perspective is it allows everyone to just have the confidence in their leadership. Because if, if five different leaders are saying things in backroom meetings, um, your culture will fall apart and that change won't happen. I love that point about culture, Michelle. You know, there's that saying, classic saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast, I guess appropriate um, in your business. Talk about how you were brought in. I think my sense is that the organization realized they needed change agents and they recognized change. How culturally is that resonating within the organization, that, that willingness to change? You get a very successful organization. I mean, each of you work for successful organizations as they are today. So sometimes the, the challenge is, well, we're successful today, so why do we need to change? Sometimes that's more obvious than, than others. Talk about it in, in the pizza pizza business. Well, you're absolutely right. There, there has to be a burning platform and need for change. And in the case of Pizza Pizza, it has been a very successful organization. Again, pizza is one of those things that, that people just love. It's easy to order. It's easy, easy to enjoy. Uh, so for me, I think very fortunately, and clearly one of the reasons why I joined the organization is that they have always had a strategic priority of innovation. So Michael talked um, about this consolidated phone number, um, insulated delivery bags. They were first to market with that. And the, and the organization developed an app 12 years ago, a pizza ordering app, which was also very innovative at its time. So that is in its DNA. The how part is the, is the, is the, is the more challenging piece. Uh, so for me coming in, again, no one had been in this role before in the organization. There are a couple of people who perceived the need, but it wasn't widespread. Um, so I have had to, um, I think I'm portioned two ways. One is sort of the quick wins piece. Stay out of everybody's way, control the controllables, and do what I can do to demonstrate quick wins. And then the other is the longer uh, strategic priorities. So on the quick wins piece, um, 
the marketing and advertising has been quite easy for me to just manage. And uh, we actually just getting recognized in the media innovation space for a campaign that we did around 4.20. So you're learning today about Canada's culture, Canada's cannabis culture, uh, which I'm learning about quite quickly as well. I think we all are. It's one, we're one year into this. Um, didn't know that we needed this, but apparently we do. Uh, so the cannabis culture, we recognize uh, through data-derived insights that people, there's a correlation between people searching for cannabis late night and pizza late night. <laughs> so we put the two together in, a, in a sort of a clever and witty search-based uh, Google campaign. So with it, when people were looking for cannabis, um, our pizza pizza offering was right there for them with late night delivery so they didn't need to leave the home. Uh, so really so simple. Lock, and they're locked into the couch. And locked into the couch. It's all <laughs> That's right. And, and, the four, and the 420 piece is a, an important part for those who may not know of the cannabis culture. So 420 is um, the history that is funny. That's my, my room number in the hotel. So it all Zen like is coming together for me. Not that I have any because I know it's not cool here. Uh, by the way, if you ever travel to Canada, one of the most interesting things that you'll see is at every airport there's large signs don't take your cannabis out of the country, put it in the bin here. So there's large bins of cannabis now in every airport because you can travel within the country, you just can't travel without just in case you forget. But the 420 is a cultural connection and it's celebrated on April 20th, right? So it's a big day. So it's interesting that you could kind of latch on to that and, and be part of that in reality. That was a quick win. On the strategic priority piece, um, of rebuilding our loyalty program. Uh, and so that, I really believe, will help us break through this commodity price-based piece. Um, so that helps create conversations within my organization um, and obviously on the customer side. So it's a little bit more heavy lifting. We need this loyalty program to really differentiate, um, personalized by, by each different customer. Uh, it will take a little bit longer. Uh, but um, and the storytelling piece of helping people in our organization understand how this will drive business recruit revenue, traffic, etc. Using that common language is really important. Shelley, I think in your, and I know this to be true because I've been at the same table with you, uh, where you're seen in an organization that, and as the disruptor yourself, and in an organization, culturally, even back to the Levi's days, you know, that was pretty good days for Levi's. Um, you know, it was the edge of the baby boom, lots of 501s just before the introduction of Docker. So it was good times, yet they perceived the need, as did you, for change. But it wasn't in front of them. So you probably found yourself at the table uh, going in the opposite direction of other counterparts. How, how do you manage that, being that change agent in an organization and, and and starting to not just incremental change, but but to kind of activate a culture of openness to, to new ideas. And you hit on the main thing about change. I think uh, the cultural, uh, you know, sort of issues around the change is the largest, right? So I think, and I'm, I when I was listening to this conversation, I'm thinking about how people are repositioning the concept of change in new words like transformation, mm. right? Which is a much more positive outlook. And it sort of talks to the butterfly metamorphosis rather than sure. uh, the change which everyone sort of, sort of goes into a corner and fringes. Frightening but, change. So the, so the language around change is changing. It's the positive thing in the mind. But, but you're right. I think, I mean, first of all, I think in your heart you've got to feel you're doing work that is a meaningful mission. Mm. And the people you charter on this mission are going to bring about a better outcome for your customer, for the company, and for all the key stakeholders. So you've got to believe that, because it's not an easy journey. You get a lot of battles on the way. You're the first over the hill, so you get all the love that's waiting for you on the other side. As they say, that the pioneers get all the arrows in the That's background. right. And, and, the, and the other side of it is also when you're sort of starting the journey, uh, you're sort of taboo. When you get too successful, you get smuggling love. So either way, you're in sort of a struggle spot, right? There's no win from that. And so you just have to develop a really thick skin and and a level of sort of, uh, you know, inner strength on the team. It's mm -hmm. a, the, the whole team thinks that this is a journey uh, where you've got to take the hill and you've got to bring people along with you. So that's, uh, that's been a defining characteristic when I look at your career is, is the individual, but that you build a team or 
assemble a team, some internal, some external, that really assembles a team that has that shared mission. And Chris, you've mentioned that that as well. Is that that you know it's hard to be an individual, True. and eventually you need to build that kind of team of like-minded people. Absolutely. Right? And that's that's the probably one of the would you say one of the keys. I think to the most success? important. Yeah. Most and I important. think at the end of the day, it's the team that succeeds. Mm -hmm. uh, you can you can help be the coach, the servant leader, the mentor, um, the person who takes all the venting, but at the end you want a team that's supercharged, that believes in the mission, that's galvanized by the accomplishments, and, and sort of is self-fulfilling in that uh, you know, way forward. And it's like a tsunami. You, know, you start small and you build up cadence and momentum, and then you want to change everything that you touch. And I think that's when companies really embrace transformation. New word right. in a meaningful way to really change the future. I think so. It's, it's yeah. Start small, get some good wins, build a team that can do it, and then get momentum. And go for it. Well, let's transition to the kind of a few last questions, and this is one for for each of you. For the folks in the room today, the, the enterprise IT clients and and, and the, the solutions, the vendors. What's your advice to the room? And I guess I wanted to phrase it as kind of two, two starts and one stop. Um, if you're, uh, you will all be inundated with uh, people who want a share of your attention, and um, you're identified as, as change agents. Give me, and Michelle, I'm going to start with you. What, what are the things you, you'd, uh, you'd like to see from, let's call it the vendor community, uh, solution sellers? And once, what's one thing you would really wish they not do? Um, so that I guess the two starts would be do your research. Um, everybody's very busy. We've got these complex mandates, lots to be done. Aren't internal stakeholders, but external stakeholders? But do your research. Um, and related to that is understand what uh, you can do to where, where that fit is. So connect the dots and make it very clear about how you can connect the dots. Um, and the stop would be, uh, don't ask me to do that for you, to connect the dots, is, I guess, just the, the antithesis of that. Um, don't expect that you can have the best elevator pitch ever and expect that I can correlate that because I'm thinking about a million different things. So just make it as simple as possible. You're passionate about what you're doing, make me feel passionate about what you're doing as well. Chris, you've had a career of meeting new ideas and vetting uh, reality from perhaps the, the pitch. What's your uh, what's your advice? If you looked at our calendars, specifically my calendar, it's packed for weeks in advance. So when you're sending out emails saying, "Can we get together this week, next week?" Trust me, I'm thinking three months from now in my calendar to get together, and then hopefully that falls into line with you guys in a budget cycle. Because if my budget's baked, there's no way I'm getting to you for months after that because reality of my business is, while it's a good idea, if it's not within budget, it's not happening this year unless there's a really strong business case. And the other thing that <clears throat> internally I challenge my team is, uh, the example I used when I started, we were 46 weeks of not making our numbers. So understanding our numbers, I think everyone here, the reason we're successful is we know our daily numbers, we know our conversion rate, we know our average basket size, we know what our targets are, we know what, how much growth on each of those levers we want to grow. So when you come in with a significant request that has dollars attached to it, is that helping my basket size? Is that helping my conversion rate? Where am I going to make up those dollars? Because the dollars are not free. So when you're, when you're thinking about how to engage with that, in your initial email, I can increase your conversion rate by 0.2%. 0.2% will double my business rate now. Hmm. Right? Basket size increase of $10 will essentially double my business rate. So in your communications, think about how you turn it back into a re return on investment, and then I'll have time for that email versus, the, like I was joking last night, I was literally up until one o'clock doing my full-time job last night of going through emails, and out of the 300 emails, there was 100 there that I would just delete, 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 because subject line, first line, I don't have time to get to them, so I have to, have to move them on. So I guess that would be my advice for anyone. And it's not that we're trying to be jerks, it's just there's only so much time in a day. You know, you touched on something interesting, and I, I wanted to, to reflect on it with the folks in the room. 
And I, when I talk to vendors, they sometimes become frustrated at the timelines uh, around, listen, we've been, we've been talking for months. And I think that's a factor of two things. One is just the natural business cycle. And, and you touched on it very interesting that, um, look, my, my budget is based at a certain point in time. So that's a good thing to understand for anyone you're in front of. Um, because there's very little, there's a little, most of us would build in a little bit of budget to do some fun stuff outside of the larger budget cycle, not always. And even though you save that, depending on how the year is going. <laughs> let's take it back. Let's take it back. Yeah, it depends on how clever you are hiding the contingency That's right. in the, in the uh, you know, where did you, where did you put that, which drawer did you put the contingency fund in? Um, the other thing I think that, that's interesting, and, and feel free to jump in, is um, for Canadian businesses, and I think this is important in the context of selling to Canadian or U.S. businesses, we really have a bit of a diseconomy of scale. And, and that's the thing I've found most frustrating for vendors, is when they talk to Canadian businesses, oh my god, it takes you so long to decide. Why, does it, why are you so risk averse? Why does it take so long? And the reality is that um, you may be selling a solution on both sides of the border, for example, or in, or in Europe, but its impact in the Canadian business is, is huge. Right? We're only 10%, for example, the size of a US market. So the decisions are much more impactful. The margin for error is much less, even at the career perspective, right? You know, in, in some larger businesses, you can kind of mess up once or twice purposefully, and not even mess up, but you know, you can you can take more risks, right? Um, without without that impacting, but in the Canadian context, you have to be much more. I think you have to be much more deliberate because. You, you have this diseconomy of skills. Scott, what do you think? Well, you have three, three cities really to work in in Canada, right? You have Montreal, you have Toronto, you have Vancouver, right? But do 75, 80% of major urban volume, you know? That's that thin ribbon of population, right? So three cities that, that matter that they can run at scale. Right. Maybe, maybe four in Ottawa, maybe. Language for us is a big thing too, right? So Language. a lot of countries coming in, you know, we're mandated in most places, you know, 43% of the population sits in the province of Quebec and speaks French. That's in this. Kind of got it coming out of the gate. If you're going to test, you have to test in, in those kind of provinces. Yeah, I would say that to people in the room, you know, not unlike uh, my colleagues up here or, or peers up here, um, your need for revenue is not our priority of time. Is <laughs> is kind of the way I, I explain it. To <coughs> but the value in partnership and understanding the benefits that you can provide can open up calendar. Right. So just because you need to increase your, or decrease your burn rate and increase your revenue, that's not my problem. But valuing the partnership and seeing the overall extensive uh, opportunity over a period of time is unique. The other thing I would say to vendors is don't be afraid to work with another vendor in a large organization like myself. Or in the past, some of the best success I've had in other uh, companies that I've worked for is walking NRF as an example, mm. the bottom floor of NRF, and putting three vendors together. New routine, you see that. We, we talk about yeah. that every NRF from there. Uh, who would I, what, what new company did we create today? Um, your individual niche, globally, has probably been thought about to some degree somewhere. But the benefit of finding the hole in the market is combining niches together and going after something no one has touched before. But the acceleration of partnership, owning your own IP, but finding a solution that you can go to market together and find benefit through value, again, opens up time for people on our block. As Michelle said, if you don't make us think about it, most cases, the vendors are smarter than we are. We're change agents that open the door that allow it to, you know, to penetrate, right? That's really what we do. Get us excited about building a solution that solves a problem. And in some cases, you, you have to talk to somebody else, build a solution that comes together and say, hey, you know, for your app problem, hey, we're gonna come with this SDK, you know, AI generation tool, but I'm gonna run the analytics and this other company is gonna, you know, foray the, uh, the, the marketing component. Would you be interested if we did a services offering or deal or did a test for you and dropped it in place? It's a different story than I have one part of the solution. Does that, does that resonate to people? Does that make sense? Right? Because uh, as Chris said, we're not here to say no. We're actually here we're wanting to say yes. Uh, but we can't say yes to everything. We have to prioritize the best yes. So the first no, 
as, as you said, your 100 email, if you're deleted, that's the worst place you can be. The best approach you can be. I don't know if you guys ever read uh, The Challenger Sale. It's a mm -hmm. great book, great. actually, in and around how to sell benefit as opposed to actually selling your solution. Most of us in this kind of uh, role are looking for the benefit because we're solving a problem, right? And we don't want the one-trick pony. We want something that actually can leverage spin and go further than than one solution. So, so that would be my challenge to the group: is come, come open, come ready to, to kind of solve solve the problem. Don't be afraid to kind of work with someone else, and be respectful that understanding that your need for revenue is not necessarily our priority for time. I think it really touches on something that's inherent, I think, to Enterprise Ireland: is that the the, the collaboration and working together. I think you've got that natural ecosystem. Uh, so be sure to take advantage of, you know, from my outside in observation and, and working with uh, Enterprise Island, you've got that advantage already, and it's yours to be yours to be harvested in, in some ways. And you know, the other you, you talked about the challenger customer, the, the one kind of it's a great book, so make sure and look it up. And one of the things they, they say is, for God's sake, stop asking people what keeps you up at night uh, or what are your pain points, because it's kind of like. Oh my God! If I have to think about them, I'll jump out a window and. <laughs> or if I have to take five minutes to explain it, sure. you could be explaining to me. Yeah. What's my pain point? Vendors who don't do the research. <laughs> I was, was going to add a word of encouragement as well, which is be persistent. Yeah. Uh, take that passion and be persistent because you know that you're dealing with busyness. Uh, because it it's might just personal. be that, it's nothing personal. It's nothing personal. It might just be that one moment where I'm about to switch gears and I can have five, you know, spend a few minutes and open. Open-mindedness to pay attention. So persistence does pay off. It's funny. I, I think of the uh, you mentioned AOL. The AOL strategy. If, if those of you remember, they used to send out basically a disk to get their dial-up, and they'd send out basically you'd get a disk every week in the mail. And I asked the direct marketer who was running that in Canada, why on earth do you bombard people with disks? He said, well, at some point you're going to get frustrated with your 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 ISP. And you can open the drawer and there'll be an AOL disk there. So you know, a little bit of carpet bombing of, of disks, but it, it's that you know that niche of an opportunity, right? That that thing. Shelley, um, you again, you know, I mentioned it a couple of times, but in your career, you've, you've had a lot of pitches. Yeah. You looked at a lot of technologies, and, and you know, part of the art and science of, of what we all do is kind of sussing out what you know what is the potential and what is the what is the reality. What, what's your advice to the folks in the room around? Uh, Starting to do things that they may not be doing, and just for God's sake, stop doing the following thing. So a lot of the stuff that I've heard here and have said, I'd echo. And at the risk of repeating, I think there probably um, two, three things that come to mind. One is, I think, understanding the risk profile of the company you're targeting. So different companies with different size have different risk profiles, and they act very differently. And I've sort of experienced that in my career working both in Canada and the U.S different size companies, VCs go much faster, private equity are more money-centric, and then large traditional companies haven't yet learned that you know, the world has changed. It's not that the large equal the small, it's the fast that swallow the slow. And they're going to get there, but it's going to take the, the fast swallow the slow. So that, that, yeah. I, I was going to have you, but you're kind of self-unpacking it. Yeah. Is, is that, what does that advice even mean? How, how, do, how do the folks in the room understand what a risk profile looks like? In any company, that, so you, you put down a couple of stakes in the ground, which is figure out, you know, yes. large company, small company, how they're funded. Is exactly so because I think they all have different kinds of motivations. I think the base of thinking that through is to go back to some of the comments that you heard here, which is really to sort of apply good economic thinking. When I think of opportunities, I always go to size and price and the and the net ROI on this project. So I'm not averse to spending millions of dollars if I've got if I can generate a hundred million of revenue. I'm averse to spending a nickel if I can't get a dime back. Right? So I'm pretty focused about um, size of prize and and the big scheme of things how to prioritize that on any kind of ranking, right? So the bigger things uh, would be the first ones I brought or the small incremental things less. Because you know it might have a lower risk profile but the returns are also subsequently lower. Uh, so I would sort of think more economically and I would go back to the benefit statement. Because really, the solution is what you guys get crazy about and excited about. And to get us crazy and excited about that, the value and the benefit that we can get to our customers is sort of the primary driver of that. 
Well, that's an interesting statement. I mean, it, 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 and you said this already that you're customer focused and size of the prize focused. And I think you know, putting a, a, a step in in that direction and thinking with that framework is is, is important. Is, is important yeah. right? And then the the thing that I think I find amusing is you know, so when people say, "What keeps you up at night?" I say, "Nothing. I sleep like a baby. I love doing that. Nothing keeps me up at night, really, because I." I have to be at work in the morning, and I'm going to be awake. So try and sleep all night. So don't answer that don't question. I mean, people have so many problems. In the million of things, right? When you sort of really look at life, work, and everything that goes around, work is a large part of a small part of your life. Life is the bigger thing you're living, and so you want that to run on rails. And if you're running it on rails, you should be sleeping like a baby. Well, very good. Um, thank you each and every one of you for joining me on the panel. It's been, you know, just a ton of fun for me to, to listen and, and, and learn as I always do. And, and hopefully uh, you all took uh, lots away uh, from our contribution. So uh, let's hear it for the panel. And then... Thank you. And I'll hand, the, hand it back over to Jamie. Uh, Come on up. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this special edition of The Voice of Retail. Thanks to Katie and Enterprise Ireland for being our generous hosts, and Chris, Scott, Michelle, and Shelley for being my guests on this special episode. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review, and be sure and recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week.